you turn to Genesis chapter 21, please? Genesis chapter 21. Uh, Abraham and Sarah have been longing for a long time for the birth of Isaac. We took a long time to build up to that. And then in chapter 21, verses 1 through 7, we read about that joy and laughter that the Lord had made in keeping His promise. And the story picks back up. Uh, sometimes, I don't know, the stories just don't quite go the way that you would expect. There's a, there's a barrier. There's a... Um, there's something that stunts the laughter of, of Isaac and a roadblock to the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham and everything before that, everyone before him in this line, this plan of promise and redemption, the seed of the woman, the promises through Noah to Shem to Abraham. Those promises would go to Isaac and the roadblock to that is Ishmael, the first son of Abraham from the slave wife, Hagar. Kind of dealing with that roadblock, as it were, is the theme of this text, in a way. Genesis 21, 8 to 21. Let me read. You follow along, please, as I do. And the child grew, this is Isaac, and the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned, but Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water, gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. for she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, and lift up the boy. And hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his, wife, his mother excuse me, took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Isaac, the child of God's promise, had been born and is beginning to grow up. And he, when he's maybe three or so, Abraham, his father, makes a great feast to celebrate kind of this coming of age that he's no longer as dependent on his mother. And at this feast, there's some incident involving, quote, the son of Hagar, the Egyptian. Now, we know his name is what? Ishmael. But the text, this text, uh, almost goes to pains to avoid 
saying his name. It's, it's I think, a clue that he's really not a character that we're supposed to be involved with or worried about or following anymore. No one says his name throughout this entire text. But Ishmael, this incident, he laughs. And there have been, this has been explained in a crazy variety of ways. Uh, I mean, he's just telling a joke, and right? It just sort of disrupts it. Sarah's ticked at him anyway. All the way to like some sort of like discussing abuse type thing. Like this, the range of what this word could mean. I, I, I don't think that that's it. I think that he's mocking. Uh, he's certainly persecuting in some way, making fun of Isaac in some way. And Sarah's mama bear comes out. She's had enough. Actually, I think she had had enough about 16 years ago uh, when Hagar first showed signs of pregnancy. I think that was enough for Sarah. Sarah goes to her husband, tells him to get rid of both of them, cast them out. That is not a gentle word. Expel them forcefully from the household from its protection, from its provision, but especially from its future inheritance. And to be honest, I mean, reading this, it's a, it's a passage that saddens me. When I first get to it, it's like, come on, Sarah, why can't we all just get along? Like, you, you have your son. Like, you have the promise. That's, that's enough, isn't it? I, I think Abraham shares that. Uh, get rid of her son, and he's sad. He, He's sad about whose son? Did you see? He's sad about his son. But for Sarah, like, there's no aspect of that that matters. It's displeasing to Abraham as well. He loves his son Ishmael, even though it doesn't seem that he really cares that much about Hagar, his wife or slave woman. Uh, but what really, really shocks me, my first reading of this, it took some time to process, recognizing that my instincts are wrong and God's word is right. But I still have to deal with my instincts. Verse 12, like, okay, Sarah, wrong. Abraham, good guy. What does God say? Well, what does God say? Verse 12, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you for, and here's the reason, it is through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So God himself recognizes that roadblock idea, that Ishmael, in a sense, is in the way of what God has for Isaac. But in order to understand this, I do think we need to back up a little bit. So first, remember that according to God's revelation to Abraham, what God had told him to do, Ishmael should never have been born, right? It's clear that it was never God's intention to use Hagar to fulfill his promise to Abraham. That plan B was not God's plan B. He didn't need a plan B. It was just plan A. Uh, which was that Isaac would be born to Sarah when she was 90. That was God's plan. Ishmael was never the child of God's promise. Instead, he was the result of unbelief and human efforts on Sarah and Abraham's part to help God out as if he needed their help. If Abraham and Sarah had trusted God and waited on God's timing, then there would no, be no need for any of this. But because they didn't do that, Abraham is left with the painful consequences of his unbelief in the form of his son, Ishmael. I mean, none of us can relate to that, right? Painful consequences of our unbelief. We try to push forward, help God out. But even in the midst of that, for Abraham and for us, God does remain gracious toward Abraham, despite his unbelief, doesn't he? 
God is faithful. God is gracious. He's going to fulfill his promises despite all of the different instances. It's like every other chapter, every two or three chapters, Abraham does something else. It's like, I thought we moved past that. Uh, Now he's human, just like we are. God is not human. God is gracious. So first, Ishmael should never have been born. And really, it's that unbelief bearing fruit into Ishmael that requires this. But remember also, God had been clear that Ishmael would not be Abraham's heir. According to custom, he should have been. According to Abraham's own desire, he could have been. But according to God's clear revelation, Ishmael would not be Abraham's heir. Isaac was the son of promise. Isaac was Abraham's sole heir. And Sarah understood that even even though Abraham had a hard time grasping it. And Sarah understood that Uh, even in the eyes of Abraham, probably, that Ishmael stood in Isaac's way. Sarah saw that, and I think Sarah saw that to Abraham there was something else, that there was this roadblock of Ishmael standing in the way of her own son's advancement, which we could be like, that sounds very selfish. And on her part, it probably was. I don't know that we have to claim a righteousness of motivation and action on Sarah's part, yet when God speaks, he's like, she's She's right. That Ishmael has to be removed because it is through Isaac. So she may not have been righteous in how she went about it, but the Bible is clear from God's own mouth, Sarah was right. Ishmael did need to leave. And that meant Hagar, his mother, had to leave too. And we're working through Genesis as a foundational book in the Bible. So we're learning about God and about his plan and about his character and about his purposes. And that's throughout the whole Bible. But in Genesis, when we're first reading that, we're learning things sometimes for the first time. Uh, at least as the progress of Revelation goes. And so here, kind of a first piece of this that I think does help us in understanding this text is something that becomes much clearer as Revelation unfolds, as we see other things, and it's this truth about God, that God makes a clear distinction between his people according to his promise and not his people. Where we want to lump everything together, God says, no, there are two groups. And they are my people, and this is Isaac. And they are really not my people, and that's Ishmael. Then we're going to see that much, much clearer. I mean, the Bible frequently references not Isaac and Ishmael, but Jacob and Esau, the next generation to make this same point. Or even though they're both offspring of Abraham, even though they're both offspring of Isaac, the child of promise, God says, Jacob is mine. Esau is not. Uh, this isn't as stark, but I, I think it's really kind of a precursor to that same lesson. So for the fulfillment of his purposes, not Sarah's purposes, but for, for the fulfillment of God's purposes, God tells Abraham to follow Sarah's request and send the boy and his slave woman away. But even in this, Abraham shows a little bit of kindness. Uh, he doesn't cast her out. He sends her away. He provides some provisions. It's like, really, Abraham? Like, that's it? I don't know. Again, just this story is just kind of like, ugh. Ugh. But God displays his mercy, and God displays his goodness, and God displays his faithfulness. At the first promise of Isaac in chapter 17, however many months ago that was, we haven't talked about that since last year. 
The first promise of Isaac in chapter 17, when Abraham asked God just to bless Ishmael rather than worry about another son, God refuses, but he does say in the midst of this, chapter 17, verse 20, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac. And here in 2113, God reminds Abraham of this promise. We see it. I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. So early the next morning, Abraham provides provisions for Hagar and the child still unnamed. He'll never be named in this passage. And he sends her away and she wanders south, probably heading back toward Egypt where she came from. Unfortunately, the provisions run out as they wander in the wilderness and both Hagar and the boy are in danger of dying of thirst. But that can't happen. He can't die of thirst in the wilderness. Why? Because God had made a promise that he would live and multiply. That hasn't happened yet. So it's, that can't, he can't die in that way. And for the second time, remember chapter 16, the second time in the story of this Egyptian slave woman that's getting sent away, God sees. You are the God who sees me. God still sees Hagar. And God hears. You're the God who hears me. And God speaks to Hagar. But don't miss the wordplay. Uh, even though the text doesn't name him, the boy's name is what again? Ishmael. And you know what that means? It means God hears. It doesn't say who he is, but it says, and God, El, hears. Shma. Ish, hears, El, God. So there's a play there. God is still the God who hears, just like when Ishmael was named back in chapter 16. He rescues them, God rescues them both by opening her eyes to see a well of water, and as he promised, God was with the boy, according to verse 20. He grew up, he became skilled with the bow, he gets a wife, and we'll learn later in chapter 25, he has 12 sons, all of whom grow up as princes over their own tribes. That's it. Other than that little closing of his genealogy in chapter 25, we are done with this son of the slave woman. It's the text is done, he no longer matters to this story. It's, it's as if he's one of the nations now, not one of God's promised people. Israel's life, Ishmael's life continues, excuse me, God blesses him, but the blessings are all physical, they're all temporary, they're all earthly. Ishmael is not one of God's people, and therefore the most significant blessings are not his. God is not Ishmael's God. As I think about him, his condition reminds me of what Paul told the Gentile Christians in Ephesus many, many years later. He said, remember that before you were saved, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now for them, that, that became a reversal. But for Ishmael, it's almost his proximity to that, and he is sent away. Although the story of his life continues, and probably would be an interesting read, he's not a part of the story of God's redemption plan. Therefore, he's not a subject in Genesis anymore. But he was really successful. He had a ton of kids. He was successful in his, his uh, business and hunting ventures, his war. Probably incredibly wealthy. Successful trade for his descendants. 
but not part of God's redemption plan. And that's kind of the first thing that I'm trying to think about Ishmael here for ourselves. The point of this sermon is that there's nothing better than God's gospel promises. There's nothing better than God's gospel promises. And I think that we can see that clearly as we look at the life of Ishmael. First, here in Genesis. Ishmael in Genesis, we, we learn that gospel promises are better than earthly blessings. To consider the contrast of the life of Isaac, which we'll look at over the next weeks and months, to the life of Ishmael that we have just sort of in this summary drop of these type of things. God's goodness to Ishmael seems limited merely to health and success and offspring. And thinking about this, I'm reminded of Jesus' question to his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, a question that's good for all of us to consider as we consider some, really even some of the difficulties that Isaac's going to have and the rest of God's people have versus the success we see in the life of Ishmael. What did Jesus say? What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? For Ishmael, we could ask, what is the benefit of gaining God's physical blessing but forfeiting God's spiritual promise? And it doesn't really seem to be a choice that Ishmael is making in here. Like we just, we never really hear from him. The only thing we ever hear of him doing is, is living and laughing. But I think sometimes if we consider that, it's just like, what would we like to have from God? I think very often it's just like, yeah, hey, you know, I kind of like this Ishmael thing. I want God to be with me. I want to be skilled in what I have. I want to be healthy and rich and have a bunch of, have a bunch of kids and have them all be well and powerful and respected. But is that all that we want from God? Is that it? It's like, oh, what, yeah, but what about God himself? Because it's an idolatry that can come from those physical or those earthly blessings. But God's gospel promises are better than those things. So think about that carefully, honestly, you, all of us. I mean, whether you're retired from whatever your field was or uh, whether you're just entering into your field of work, whether you're a kid that's like, oh, I'm going to have to work someday. If you had to choose between the two, earthly blessings or gospel promises, which would you choose? It's not, again, not really a choice we hear of put before Ishmael, but it is a choice put before us every day. Do we want physical comfort now or spiritual comfort forever? And these things are not mutually exclusive, I know, but, but there is a heart direction question. Do we want physical comfort now or spiritual comfort forever? Do we want to hear the praise and applause of men now or hear God's praise for all of eternity? Which is a question, which is a statement that Jesus or one of the gospel authors, might have been Matthew, maybe it was John, puts in, I think it was John, puts in front. They love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Uh, do we pursue physical pleasure here on earth at all costs, or do we deny ourselves and say no to our fleshly desires as we wait for true eternal joy in eternity? Do we love money or do we love God? Because it says you can't love, can't love both. Are we citizens of this world's kingdom or the kingdom of Christ, which is to be revealed at his coming? Are we alive to this world and dead to God or dead to this world and alive with Christ? God's gospel promises are better than earthly blessings. You just want the stuff that'll wear out or could get stolen? You know, seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness. Your needs will be taken care of. 
There's nothing better than God's gospel promises. And when we miss that, when we wrongly choose earthly pleasures over heavenly delights, we are fools. It's a foolish decision to, to consider the life stories of Isaac and Ishmael and be like, you know, that Ishmael, that Ishmael thing sounds good. That's the way that I want God to be with me. That's, that's foolish. It's short-sighted. It's temporary. It's earthly. It's physical. It's not heavenly. And as I thought about that, I, I remembered a very famous, often quoted uh, section of one of C.S. Lewis's books that he says this, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Uh, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. That all that you want from God? Yeah, just be with me. Make me good with my bow. Give me a bunch of kids. Make my investments grow. Give me a raise in my job. That's all, that's all I really want from you. Reflected in our prayers. Or it's just kind of like, no, the treasure is your promise in the gospel. That's what I want. God's gospel promises are better than earthly blessings. Brothers and sisters, do not be too easily pleased. Do not be deceived by the useless fool's gold of this world. Do not spend your life pursuing clothes that wear out or money that devalues at a surprisingly rapid rate or devices that become obsolete or pleasures that fade. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And set your minds, your affections, your longings and desires, set those on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, the fulfillment of the promise, you also will appear with him in glory. And none of the things that, of these earthly blessings, none of them will matter to us anymore. There's nothing better than gospel promises. They are far better than earthly blessings. That's point one. And point two is almost more like part two for this text. Uh, you turn to Galatians 4, please. Galatians chapter 4. We had, uh, I got to teach the teenagers, middle school and high school class, about Matthew today. And Matthew's an amazing book, um, uh, gospel of Jesus that is just, I don't even know what, obsessed makes it sound bad, but is just permeated with Old Testament fulfillment. And not just the few quotations that Matthew has uh, to fulfill the prophet Isaiah, to, to fulfill the prophet Jeremiah, as was spoken in the prophets, far more than that. But it, like Hebrews, it's actually filled with kind of this, this typology type thing, where it's just like, hey, do you remember what Abraham did? You remember how Isaac was born miraculously? Yeah, that's because Jesus would be born miraculously. It's the, the shadow and fulfillment type idea filled with that. So as we look at the Old Testament, uh, Jesus taught his apostles, the apostles taught us, you have got to see Jesus in all of those type of things. Better Adam, better Ark, right? Better Abraham, better Isaac, perfect Israel, better Moses, better prophets, better David, right? Just boom, boom, boom. And Matthew is just filled with those things. And Hebrews teaches us the same thing. And that's, that's a type, anti-type or shadow fulfillment type thinking. 
And I'm always trying to grow in those type of things. There's another way of, of looking at the Old Testament uh, that was popular for a, a window of church history and was weird and kind of very much fell out of popularity uh, because of how weird it was. And it was, it was allegory. Are you familiar with allegory? What's, what's a really famous allegory? Pilgrim's Progress, right? Where he just takes all of these truths and he, or John Bunyan just kind of makes it a real thing to, to make a point. That's fine. Uh, I read a story in my Bible reading. Let's see if I can find it. It's 2 Samuel, I think it was. Yeah, the rebellion of Sheba. And Joab's an interesting guy, one of David's generals. And Joab came to Amasa, who David had put in charge of the army. and said, is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow. And he died. And I was like, yes, that's what we need to do with sin. Right? When sin comes close, we need to trick it and grab it and stab it until its entrails fall out on the ground. The entrails of, of money spill it out, right? The, the entrails of physical pleasure, let them just spill on the ground as you murder your sinful flesh. Do you think that that's what any author of scripture had in mind from that passage? No, a couple of you are like, what? And a couple of you are laughing because you know what I'm trying to do, right? You can't just like take a story and be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But really, even if it's, you know, you should be killing sin, that's great. Paul talks about it. It has nothing to do with what Joab does to Amasa in that story. Like, that's not a good thing. But it's like, allegorically, you can just make a story mean anything. And so uh, there were whole groups of interpreters, whole schools of interpretation, like, man, we can just take a text and we can say whatever it wants. That's alive and well in our area. Uh, like, oh, he gave them that. He'll give me this. That sounds great. Like, that's not what the text is about. Like, what does the text mean? But interestingly, Paul uses the word allegory in Galatians 4 as he looks back at our text which he both kind of has, there's a type element to it, but in the center of it really is allegory. He's like, well, let me just draw a lesson using these as, as different types of figures. And I'm obviously not saying that Paul is wrong. If Paul wants to use an allegory, he could do so. I want to use an allegory. I should probably find something better to say uh, when it comes to interpretation of, of scripture. We need to be careful about those kind of things. But, but Paul does use this this way. And I want to try to explain that point to you. An important gospel point for us. See, throughout Galatians, Paul continues, continually argues the contrast between the true gospel and the not gospel, between faith and works, between freedom and slavery. And while slavery to sin may be the first thing that we think about when we talk about slavery, while slavery to sin can be revealed by someone walking in the works of the flesh, like sexual immorality, idolatry, envy, drunkenness, the things that Paul talks about, even in Galatians, uh, Galatians chapter 5. Well, that can reveal, that's one way of walking according to the flesh. That's one way of being enslaved. A slavery to sin can also be revealed by those who, despite the coming of Christ and the new covenant in his death, still subject themselves to old covenant law-keeping. Requiring circumcision of Christians is one form of this. Right? Another would be requiring the Christian observance of certain holy days or months or seasons and years that were mandated under the Mosaic law, but all of which have been fulfilled in Christ. 
And these issues plagued the New Testament church. It comes up in Acts, and it comes up in Galatians. It came up in Romans and to the Corinthians. It came up to the Colossians, right? It comes up to the, to the Hebrews. Don't go back to those shadows because Christ has come. Paul addresses them frequently because he's passionate that Christians understand that since Christ fulfilled the Mosaic law for us and in our place, we are no longer under that law. It has no authority over us. We died with Christ and a dead man has no laws to obey. So to place ourselves back under the Mosaic law at this point is actually to distance ourselves from Christ. Pretend that he hasn't come. That his work hasn't been complete. And in order to make this point clear, Paul uses an example from the law. That is the book of Genesis. That's Galatians 4, 21 to 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the, slave, the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds, that's allegorical language. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted, or what we read is laughed at, him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, sisters, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. At first glance, Genesis 21 appears to teach the superiority of Jews over Gentiles. After all, Isaac is in the Jewish line, what would become the Jewish line. And Ishmael is not. People of God, not people of God. Jewish, not Jewish. That's how you could first read that thinking, that that's the progress of the story. But this kind of thinking actually misses the storyline of the Bible. It reflects the same problem seen throughout the Old Testament and then made crystal clear in the New Testament. Because the actual contrast in Genesis 21, which Galatians 4 makes clear for us, is not between physical Jews and physical Gentiles. It is a contrast between the flesh and the promise. That which we do for ourselves and that which God does for us in Christ. That's the difference between Isaac and Ishmael. Everything having to do with the flesh in reality is slavery to sin. Everything having to do with the flesh is slavery to sin. And everything having to do with God's gospel promises is freedom from sin, freedom from our flesh, freedom that is found in Christ. That's the difference. Flesh versus promise or spirit. Uh, Sin versus 
gospel. Us versus Christ. See, Isaac was born miraculously when, through God's promise, Sarah was enabled to conceive, even at 90 years old. This was a miracle accomplished by the powerful working of the Spirit of God, right? That's not controversial. But Ishmael had been born naturally when, contrary to God's promise, Abraham slept with Hagar, married, slept with Hagar, and she conceived. There was nothing miraculous about this. God's Spirit was not in it, and it wasn't in keeping with his redemption plan or his promises. Let me back up a little, because as I wrote out a whole bunch of stuff, I was like, I'm losing myself here. So if you're like, what is he talking about? I was with you all week. So I'm going to back up again, see if I can lay it out a little bit clearer. Because of Adam's sin in the garden, we are all born slaves to sin, right? All means all humanity here. That included then every Jewish boy or girl born under the old covenant. They were all born slaves to sin. The Mosaic law given by God to his old covenant people, what did it do? It instructed them as to God's righteous standards, even his own righteousness. It instructed them as to those type of things. And its punishments and curses were meant kind of like a leash to restrain some expressions of their sinfulness. But most effectively, the law revealed their slavery to sin. And Paul makes a big deal about that. Just kind of like, coveting wasn't even a problem for me until I read in the law, don't covet. And then my flesh was like, what's coveting? I want to do that. <laughs> like I could sit in a room filled with buttons like all day and just be like, that doesn't really matter. Until it's like, well, don't press the red one. Like, what red one? That red one, <laughs> Right. It's like, it doesn't even matter until why, right? So it's not, it's not something silly and arbitrary like a button, but it's just like our flesh, which exists, can remain dormant until all of a sudden a, an instruction comes up and you're like, whatever the rule is, I just want to break it because that's just what the flesh does. Whatever authority just wants to cast it off. God's authority, man's authority doesn't matter. And so the law in providing these commandments aroused the sinful nature of a sinful people, the old covenant people of Israel. So all these different things was not just kind of like, all right, well, live perfectly by this. It was just kind of like, look, this, what this is going to do is this is going to be that James 1 mirror to show you your sinfulness. Because you don't want to do anything that God wants you to do. We don't, naturally. They didn't, naturally, because all of us are enslaved to sin. And this proved the, the presence of God's law to the Old Covenant Israelites, revealing their sinful nature, proved they weren't free children of God's promise like Isaac was, allegorically speaking. The law did not show the freedom that they lived in. The law showed the slavery to sin that they lived in. They were actually... Old Covenant Israelites, under the law of God, were actually enslaved children of the flesh like Ishmael. And they had to live under slavery to the law because of their slavery to sin. Jesus was the son of God's promise. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was born not enslaved to sin. But like his fellow Israelites, he was born under the law. And he had to keep the law and keep it. He did. 
perfectly and entirely, earning righteousness, which he transfers to the accounts of his people, his sinful people who trust in him. And Jesus' keeping of the law actually fulfilled the law, bringing it to its intended completion, ending its rule over people. So all who trust in Jesus, Jew or Gentile, are born again. Born new, not born according to the flesh, not born enslaved to sin. We are born again according to promise by God's spirit, and we are freed from sin, and we are freed from the Mosaic law. However, various groups in the New Testament times claimed to be followers of Jesus, but insisted that all Christians still needed to obey the Mosaic law. As in all Jewish Christians needed to remain religiously Jewish, and all Gentile Christians needed to become religiously Jewish. But Paul calls this an anti-gospel. Paul calls this return to living under the Mosaic law slavery after freedom had been provided. Like, you've been set free, but you're going to put yourself back into slavery? That's, his, that's what he's getting at here in Galatians, most specifically. But since we have been set free, Paul asks the Galatians, why would you want to return to law slavery? Freedom in Christ, according to God's gospel promise, is better than that. There's nothing better than God's gospel promises. That's the lesson from Ishmael in Galatians. In Genesis, it was gospel promises are better than earthly blessings, kind of to draw aspects of Ishmael's life for ours. But in Galatians, it's God's promises, gospel promises are better than law-keeping slavery. Now, the standard Jewish view, I'm I'm quoting here, the standard Jewish view was that the law is the pathway to liberation and freedom. But Paul argues that it ends up enslaving and captivating people For the law demands obedience and does not grant any power to keep its precepts. It slays but does not grant life. It requires what it doesn't help with. Does that sound like the Pharisees? You create these burdens for people so you don't lift a finger to help them. Well, they were steeped in a law of just like perform. But it's just like, but how? It's like, right, it wasn't the point. The point wasn't to perform. The point was to reveal your inability to perform. And I read that quote this week about what the law could or could not do, which again, these same authors, it's not like, well, then just chuck the Old Testament. We're preaching the Old Testament. Are you really going to say that I think we should chuck the Old Testament? No. But we do need to have it in context of how it points us to Jesus. But I remembered a poem that I'd read this week. This is, this is another great one attributed to practically every John in all of church history. And it probably was like none of them. And it doesn't even exist in this form. It doesn't really matter. It's a great poem nonetheless. But just this wasn't John Bunyan, very likely. If you're like, oh, that's John Bunyan. No, it's not. Sorry. But it's a great poem nonetheless. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Do you see the the contrast of those things? Here's a standard of rules. It's a burden. 
put on a back, kind of like the burden that John Bunyan's pilgrim was carrying, right? Of sin and the weight of those things. He goes to the mountain of legality. Obey, obey, obey. He's like, I just can't. That's not the path of the gospel. Do, do, do. Keep, keep, keep. Obey, obey, obey. There's a burden that the Pharisees couldn't bear and the children that they would have, the, the, their disciples weren't going to be able to bear because it's just this perpetuation of slavery. And Paul says there's a different way. The gospel brings through the power of the Spirit, by God's gospel promise, the actual strength to fulfill what God wants us to fulfill. Are you a sinner? thought that was an easy one. Yes, of course you are, and so am I. Have you come to Christ trusting in him for salvation? I hope so. Having come to Christ, are you still living as if enslaved to your sinful flesh? That's the question. And again, your mind probably runs to the sinful struggles that you have. It's like, oh, yeah, I do go down the path of anger, or I do struggle to go down the path of lust. I still go down the path of loving money. It's just like, ah, yes. So sometimes I live as if I'm enslaved to sin. This is like, well, good, we need to deal with that. But that's not what this text is about. This text is about the ditch of slavery on the other side, not found in law breaking, but it found in Christless law keeping. That's the danger, and that is slavery to sin and death. Slavery from which Christ has set us free. So are you enslaved not just by brazenly breaking God's commands, but by living as if you can keep them by your own effort? That is fleshly sin slavery from which Christ has set us free. Even for a freed Christian, that kind of thinking is a re-entering into slavery. You are not under the Mosaic law or any other set of rules for your justification. It cannot purchase or earn righteousness before God for you. You also will not accomplish your sanctification by obedience to the Mosaic law either. And the law certainly lacks the ability to bring about your glorification. And again, this doesn't just apply to the Mosaic law commands. It can also apply to New Testament commands or any other set of rules that you have set up as your guide, your guardian, your definition of obedience, and your standard of righteousness. Whatever list you have of these are the things that I will do and therefore live is a a law to which you are enslaved from which Christ has set you free. Not free to disobey, but a freedom from the performance track. Do, 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 do. That's slavery, Paul says. Don't put yourself back under that. There's a remarkable amount. Here's another point. There's a remarkable amount of rule or law keeping that is possible by self-motivation in the strength of your flesh. I mean, follow around like different things on YouTube, not even Christians, right? It's just like, People that can get up at uh, four o'clock in the morning before they go to bed at five o'clock that morning, you know, run 26 miles every, every day, just in about a space of an hour. They don't eat anything, right? Just sort of look at dirt and then they're just ripped and successful and they earn a billion dollars and give away two. And it's just like, what? All without Christ. What benefit is that? None. This is like, I don't want to be lazy, as lazy as I am. I want to work harder. It's like, well, maybe there's some common grace stuff to learn from that. But they can be remarkably successful and disciplined 
right? Like the movement, kind of like an anti-porn movement among, among unbelievers. Great. They shouldn't look at porn. But it's just like, but they are powerless to defeat the flesh. No amount of thinking or standards or rules is ever going to actually help you in defeating your flesh. It's just going to cause you to fall from one ditch to the other ditch because you can't stay on the path of following Christ without Christ. And an unbeliever doesn't have Christ. That's the definition of it, right? Paul, the Apostle Paul, said that when it came to the righteousness under the law, do you remember his his self-evaluation recorded in sacred scripture about his righteousness under the law? What did he say? Called himself blameless in Philippians chapter 3. He's like, you want to talk about law-keeping? Did it perfectly. And then he said, but it was Christless. And since it was Christless, it was spiritless. And the only other option is the flesh. And so if something is Christless and spiritless, it is worthless. So he said, I took all that righteousness, just like it just became garbage. It actually was keeping me from Jesus. Obedience or law-keeping of any kind, it never leads to God-glorifying heart transformation. That is, that is putting the flesh first. Obedience never leads to or produces heart transformation. Heart transformation by the Spirit results in obedience. So no matter how hard you try or how restrictive your schedule is or how many rules you have to govern your relationships and responsibilities, you cannot produce a genuine wholehearted love for God or a genuine self-denying love for your neighbor. You can't produce that on your own. Not you haven't yet. You can't and you won't because that has to be produced in you by the Holy Spirit. And a transformation, it's like, as if, as if God is pleased by you doing something that you despise doing. Like Luther points that out in his, I think it's in his preface to Romans, where it's just kind of like, he did a bunch of stuff, he followed all the rules, he was as, practically as righteous as Paul, and he hated God the whole time. He hated God for the standard that he put on him. He was just sick of this tyrant demanding his life, like, like controlling his life and never being satisfied with the results. And he says, I hated God. It's like, why? Because God doesn't, God doesn't look on just the outside of obedience. It's not just following rules and despising them. It's loving him and then allowing that to be transformed. Apparently, because it's in the New Testament so often, we as Christians need to be very careful how we look at rules, how we look at laws, old or new. We can't assume that we're looking at them the right way especially the laws that God gave to Israel under the Old Covenant. I think much care needs to be given in seeking to learn from them. Much care needs to be given for you can quickly fall into living under the law. Paul says, why would you want to be under the law? Those who live under the law are not living in the freedom of Christ. So you are not living according to God's promise. You are, not, you, you are living as if you were Ishmael, the son of a slave woman. So it is, it is law slavery 
to require circumcision. Not really, I don't think, a discussion that's going on. Happened a lot then. Circumcised, not circumcised. Kind of a key thing. It's, it's, it is slavery to require that. Uh, it is slavery to require dietary restrictions of the Old Testament. Bacon, right? <laughs> eat bacon for the glory of God in the New Covenant. If I require you to eat bacon, then it's just the other type of slavery, so we're not going there. It is slavery uh, to require only pure fabrics never mixed with each other. It is slavery to require that seeds not be mixed in sowing, or my beard has to be cut or not cut in a certain way. It's a slavery to require the observance of holy days, and I would say that includes the Sabbath. Sabbath or no Sabbath, but it's slavery to require it of God's people that we're freed from. We're freed from the law in that way. It is slavery to live as if you were an old covenant Israelite with no knowledge of Christ and his fulfillment of that law for you. It's not an ideal society that we should all go back to. That's not what the New Testament teaches us. And Paul makes a big point that to do that casts us back into a slavery and distances us from the promise of Jesus Christ. So cast off the slavery mindset so that you may inherit all that Christ has for you as a free child of promise. In Galatians 1, Paul summarizes this and transitions to the next point. He says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Right? What good news and good promises the gospel of Jesus Christ has given to us. He lived a life of sinless obedience, perfect righteousness for us. Amen? Amen. He died on the cross, taking the punishment that our sins deserved. Yes? Yes. He rose from the dead to free us from law and sin and death. He ascended to heaven to prepare a place for us, and he will come again to bring us to himself forever. So do you believe these things to be true? And do you trust in God to keep his promises to us because of Jesus? And do you live in dependence on the Holy Spirit, whose fruit in you is love for God and for your neighbor, and then joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? I don't settle for earthly blessings and don't be enslaved by law-keeping because there's nothing better than God's gospel promises. And that's the lessons from, from Ishmael. May we learn well. Father, I admit I don't uh, understand, let alone live in, all that it means to be free in Christ. So please teach me, teach us, I do know that Jesus has done far more for us than we will ever be able to fathom. Um, so thank you, Jesus, for coming, for living, for obeying, for dying, for rising, for your work now and interceding for us and preparing a place for us and for the promise of your return. Please give us hearts to long for you and your return and our lives with you forever. Amen.